<laughs> I know, that's the thing. I need to get my drink. Oh, thanks, Monica. Thank you very much. Well, we are nothing if not put together. All right. Well, it is, it is good to be together. And I tell you, um, Roman, I'm so grateful you're praying for uh, Jess and Sharon. Um, man, if you guys are at home, we just, uh, I don't know if you could kind of tell as Roman mentioned it, but or we're, we're feeling for you guys. Um, this has been a long ordeal. And I don't want to use it to kind of, or like milk it to work our way into the passage. But I do think that there are moments in life where we're kind of in a spot sort of similar to the temptation that's facing Jessica and Sharon right now, which is that stuff happens so frequently, so, so in such a sort of like wave upon wave of difficulty. And it's not just the suffering that's the problem or the temptation, right? It's the misunderstanding that we can have about God's character in the midst of it. Because one of the easiest things to feel when we're suffering is that God doesn't care about us, right? It's so easy for us to wonder, does God really have our burden sort of on his mind? And the passage that we're coming out of, uh, if, if you're tracking along in your Bible, if you've been doing some reading, you know that Brad added, ended at chapter 7, verse 30, right? And last week he made, I thought, what was just a really rich connection to 1 Kings 17, where Elijah was in the same region that Jesus is in, and while there, he both feeds someone and heals someone. Jesus returns to the same area and visits a woman whose daughter he heals. What we're going to read um, is the stuff in between where Brad ended and where, um, and where Monica picked up. So Monica started reading for us in chapter 8, and there's a little bit of stuff that happened kind of in between those. Uh, but let's just look again uh, for a couple like geographic context clues here. So look at uh, chapter 7, verse 24, and verse 26. Just remember where this is happening. Right, So it says, from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So he made his way up north out of Jewish lands and into Gentile lands. Then in verse 31, we read this. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now, Sea of Galilee sounds Jewish, but every other word there is Gentile. And it's not just the fact that he did those things. Let's look at a, a map very briefly. You can see there where Sidon and Tyre are, where the Decapolis is. But if you track the movement that Mark kind of gives us in terms of how he makes that, that progression, look at, look at the path that he takes. He goes, it says he's going to the Decapolis, but he goes from Tyre up to Sidon and then down to the Decapolis. So the stuff that happened before was in that region between Tyre and Sidon. And he's making his way to the Decapolis, but he kind of, he kind of interestingly moves just in a path that doesn't seem particularly, uh, particularly efficient, maybe would be the best way to say it. If you're there and you're trying to get to that other uh, region, sort of, of uh, the Sea of Galilee, Decapolis, why would you take the path that you did? And this is speculative, and it's rarely safe when we make strong points out of speculation, 
But if we just take the path, kind of like sometimes we do in noticing that everybody would make a path around Samaria, right? Jesus goes straight through. It wasn't just that he was being efficient in terms of how he wanted to walk. He wanted to make a statement that the Samaritans were equally important to him, not just the children of Israel, right? But that the Samaritans, and Jesus is kind of making a geographic point here about the value of the Gentiles. These folks that wouldn't be a part of the covenant family, wouldn't be in the covenant lands, that are coming not from the covenant people, Jesus is making a really wide sort of path in order to let them know that they matter too. In fact, I think as we're just going to make our way through really what are going to be admittedly a lot of verses today, that question is just going to come over and over. Do we know that we matter to God? This isn't just a, a point of Jesus' ministry, is it? Because I think the reason that we answer the question, no, we don't, has to do with our character, right? We think there's something flawed in us, not significant enough about us, so that God wouldn't pay attention to us. Let me just give you a backdrop, though, because we're not going to answer the question that way. We're not going to try and ask questions of the disciples or these folks and say, what's so important about them that Jesus is paying attention to them? That's not the way the Old Testament answers the question of does God pay attention to us. Look at Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 starts with one big question from God. To whom then would you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So, Who's my rival? Who's my equal? That's God's question. Isaiah keeps going and says, Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He's referring to the stars. He brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Point of the first section, God is incomparable in his strength and power over everything he's made. But then another question comes in. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? In other words, if God is so powerful, why do you think he doesn't pay attention to you? And again, why is the reason? We answer the question about something about us. But notice, Isaiah starts and says, look at God the way he is. Now let's ask the question, can he pay attention to you? And if the answer is yes, it's not because of us. We start with the strength of God, ask the question, and then here it goes. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint, or he does not faint or grow weary. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. So what is it that is the prerequisite for getting strength from God? Is it being strong before that? No. What is it that's the prerequisite for getting power from God? Is it having the capacity for power? No, it is that God is strong and that we are weak and he is the kind of God who pays attention to us. That has been the fundamental error God's people make all the time. It's the one that we made probably this last week. Why do I think that God isn't really kind of for me or going to bat for me? Why is it the Gentiles in this region could think, ah, I get it, God, Jesus is sort of, maybe they're even aware of the whole Isaiah 17 backdrop. And they're like, okay, he's trying to do the Elijah thing. He's coming up to make his kind of token visit. I don't think so. He deliberately takes more time in the region. So then by the time he gets around, it wasn't some efficient trip. It's, Not either that the Gentiles are just so amazingly significant. It's that the one who created the stars and pays attention to them and gives his power to those that are faint is now actually on the planet walking in human form. God is here and he's doing the same stuff. 
So the point that I kind of want us to walk away from today is this, Jesus cares. He cares for his world. He's shown that over and over so far through Mark. But we're just going to get to see it again. Eventually, we'll make our way to the passage that that Monica read for us. But I want to start kind of right on the heels of where Brad left off. So let's pick up in in chapter 7, verse 32, which is going to be the first book into our passage. And then I'm actually going to, we don't do this a lot, but I'm going to skip to the end and take another part of the way that Jesus shows that he cares. We're going to look at the bookends of this text first. So starting in chapter 7, verse 32, we see this. It says, And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And he looked up to heaven. He sighed and said to him, Ephatha, which is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, those of you that know the story of the Landers, um, well, here we go. I am holding on to a phone right now. And the reason I'm holding on to this phone is because it has a little speaker in it. That speaker is connected to a hearing aid in Zoe. And that's letting her hear a little bit because today she needed a little bit more help being able to hear. Deafness has been part of the Lander family for a while. And those of you who maybe if we were referencing our senior crowd a little bit more, not being able to hear is tricky, isn't it? There's something very difficult about being cut off from the world when everybody else can speak and you feel like you're in a cloud of silence. When everybody else is laughing about something and you feel like you're just missing it. There's a suffering. There's an ache to it and there's a pain. And it's not easy. And it's easy. Maybe if you haven't suffered exactly like that. But if you felt left out. If you feel like there are things that the Lord has laid on your plate that keep you sort of out of sort of the know of what everybody else is dealing with, that suffering can lead you to the wrong conclusion that Jesus doesn't care. And we've got one story that Mark starts with right out of the gate and says this man who couldn't speak and couldn't hear has been brought to Jesus and Jesus in really deliberate fashion goes and heals him. Now let's go to the other bookend. Skipping away all the way to chapter 8, verse 22. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, which is now we're kind of into Jewish lands. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. On these two bookend stories, we've got some things that are similar, right? We've seen Jesus heal in powerful ways, not even present with somebody, right? 
We've seen Jesus heal in ways that are just almost like minimal contact, touching the corner of a robe, and that's enough. A word, the centurion saying, hey, I've got people under authority. Me, all you have to do is speak, and it happens, because, I mean, you've got more power than I do, and I speak, and things happen. And yet here, in both of these bookend stories, Jesus is a lot more deliberate in the means that he uses. What's the reason? Well, like I said, speculation can be a little bit dangerous. So it's helpful for us not to make too many conclusions about the why, but we can at least say this about what. Jesus doesn't always heal the same way, does he? Now, isn't that encouraging when we think about it in terms of the way that we work? Because I don't know about you, but being part of a Christian community, sometimes it can be easy to compare my story with yours. The way that the Lord has freed some people from one debilitating sin pattern. And you hear about this way that they were enslaved in something. And you think, they cried out to Jesus and he healed them and it was over. And I think, are you kidding me? I have confessed the sin of being so amazed at what I have to say that I interrupt all the time. And I even did it this morning to Anne and to Carolyn. I'm just thinking about that now. I'm so sorry. This is just part of me. I have prayed and asked, Lord, would you take this love affair with my own voice away? And yet here we are doing this, right? And it doesn't, it doesn't go away like that. And yet I hear somebody else saying, boy, this was a struggle for a long time. I prayed the Lord just took it away. I find these two bookend stories very encouraging. That the Lord is at work in our lives in ways that are not always similar across the body of Christ. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said about both of these. I kind of took two of his quotes and lumped them together since that's what we're doing with the passage. He says, here we are meant to see our, our Lord's power to heal the spiritually deaf and the spiritually dumb. He can give the chief of sinners a hearing ear and teach the hardest of transgressors to call upon God. He can cause him to delight in listening to the gospel, which he once ridiculed and despised. And he can put a new song in the mouth of him whose talk was once only of this world. Let us see in the gradual restoration of the blind man a vivid illustration of the manner which the Spirit frequently works in the conversion of souls. We are naturally blind and ignorant of the matters, sorry, in the matters which concern our souls. Conversion is an illumination, a change from darkness to light, from blindness to seeing the kingdom of God. Yet few converted people see things distinctly at first. Their vision is dazzled and unaccustomed to the new world into which they've been introduced. It's not till the work of the Spirit has become deeper and their experience somewhat been somewhat matured that they give to each part of religion its proper place. This is the history of thousands of God's children. And happy is he who has learned this lesson well and is humble and distrustful of his own judgment. Now let's just briefly for a sec compare this sort of application point to the point Brad made last week. One of the points that I thought was so helpful just in terms of that wave of quotes that you gave us, Brad, was the, the power of a parent praying for a child, the power of, of a child being brought before Jesus. And if you take that and compare it up against some of the ways that Jesus heals, there could be a discouragement for a parent, couldn't there? 
I've prayed for this child for a long time. I've prayed for this family member for a long time, and I don't see the work, God, that I thought you were going to do. Why didn't you just heal them like that? Why can't this be one of Mark's immediately moments? These are the unimmediately moments of Mark, aren't they? And the call for us to continue in prayer, continue in hope, continue not to accuse Jesus of not caring, but to remember that even in these situations where there's a gradual sense of healing, there's a tactile sense of healing, there's a, whatever this is, a spittle sense of healing, right? He spits in both of them. It's kind of weird. That in both of those, we have reminders that the Lord is at work individually in our lives and we ought not to lose hope. We ought not to give up because Jesus still cares for the sufferings in his world. Now, remember, as we move on to our second point and we enter into chapter 8, the other thing that Jesus cares about isn't just those who are suffering, it's those that are hungering, right? And we had obvious uh, sort of example of that when Jesus was in the realm of the Jews He had kept them out pretty late. The disciples were aware, and we had the whole feeding of the 5,000. Clearly, Jesus cares about the Jews. But now we're in Gentile land. Listen to what happens in chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And the disciples answered him, how can, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And if you're just reading Mark along, not kind of at the pace we're taking it Sunday after Sunday, but you're just reading it in your devotions, you've got to be thinking like, flip, flip, dude, look what Jesus did. Why can you not see this? But... They can't. And so he asks them, how many loaves do you have? And you got to wonder, is this sounding familiar, guys? And they said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. They took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. There were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Now, if this, in, in odd ways, when you're reading scholars, uh, if you want to call them scholars, sometimes it just feels like you're just reading critics. If you read those that have studied the Bible and are trying to not necessarily look at it to find... Um, evidence that God came to to earth as a man, but are looking at it to kind of pick it apart for its details. One of the points that they'll make is, boy, Mark is full of errors here, clearly, because we already had this story. And now there's this other story. So which was it? Was it there or was it here? Was it 5,000 or was it 4,000? Was it this many baskets or was it that many baskets? And you've got to be asking a question that just says, do you think Mark is absolutely stupid? He wrote this. I'm pretty sure he remembers what he wrote. And even if you want to take apart the, you know, Mark's authorship or Peter behind it, and you want to pretend it's a compilation of things, I'm sorry, but the people who compile it, they knew there were two accounts. 
The best and most critical reading, just giving any sort of like assumption that the author knows what he's writing about is to say not that these are the same story and he's having trouble getting his details. It's that it happened twice. And it happened twice to be able to make a point to the Gentiles, but also to the disciples that the Gentiles matter just like the Jews do. And if that doesn't seem obvious in the Gospels, the good news is the Bible preaches one message, and you can see the exact same pattern happen in the book of Acts. That Jesus works and does things and pours the Spirit out on these people, most of whom are Jewish. And then he goes and does the same thing here for some who are Samaritan. Then he goes and does the same thing here for these who are Gentiles. What's the point he's making? It's not that he insufficiently sent the Spirit the first time. It's to try and say, All groups of people get the same blessings from God. And that's the point he's kind of giving in sort of beginning forms here in the book of Mark. This happened to the Jews, and this happens to the Gentiles. Why? Because across the board, Jesus cares when his people are hungry. We're going to take that as an amen back there, brother. (laughs) The question is, and I just want to ask this, do we? There is so much hunger, and we take this on a literal level. We are a blessed people. And a passage like this does ask us, do do we care that there is suffering and that there is hunger in the world? The moments that we have to be able to reach out, when we hear calls from Nepal saying, we are starving, mudslides, last little plague that has hit the folks that we know of in Nepal, They're asking, we are hungry, will you help? Those moments that we've come to you as a church and said, what would you like to give? And then the the elders see the response and get to match it. I mean, there have been moments when our budget has kind of, (laughs) we've looked afterwards and thought, huh, seems like we overgave. We heard you say this is how much you wanted to give. We matched up to that. We sent a good chunk of money over there. Maybe not for some churches, but for our church, pretty good chunk of money. And then we've looked and seen our budget and thought like, oh, wow, looks like maybe we needed some of that money. I'm not sure if we analyzed all that entirely right. And I can tell you this, not once have we ever given and thought, you know, Brad, I don't know. Let's, let's think in the books. Maybe we should, maybe we should retract that gift because we needed that more than they did. Now, that's just us from the church. I mean, as I think about the Lander household, there are a few things we do, but proportionally, man, my my money goes to feed me. And Jesus seems to care greatly for those in this world that are hungry. And we, as probably the most prosperous people now and the most prosperous people ever, boy, we have some questions to have asked of us, don't we? James asks some pretty hard questions and makes some pretty severe judgments that says if we praise God and we don't care about those made in his image, I don't know what our praise really means. If we say, hey, go be warm and well-filled and we do nothing practically, well, that doesn't necessarily back up our language all that much, does it? But kind of in the way that we often read these stories, we see them for what they are, and we also recognize that Jesus has in mind a far greater sense, both of the deafness and blindness he was talking about, but also of the hunger that's there for his world. 
There's a verse that we went over in Romans 9, and because of the pace we were going through Romans, I didn't stop and park on this a lot. But I tell you, there's a moment right there in Romans 9 when Paul is asking the question about Israel. If you remember, we did 9, 10, and 11 together. We really asked the question of Israel and, and God's plans for Israel. It began with this. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he goes on and talks for a long while out of that heartbeat of just his awareness that there is a deep spiritual hunger on the part of his people and they are starving for the grace that feeds him daily. The question for us isn't just as rich Americans, how do we do with the fact that other people are suffering. The, the question is, well-fed believers, how do we do with the fact that others in this world are hungry? Paul's answer and example, I think, propels us on. It moves us and it asks us a question. Do we know that Jesus cares for the suffering? And do we? And do we know that Jesus cares for the hungering? And do we? And that then brings us to the passage that that Monica read. Now, what I'm going to do is I want to read this all kind of in one spot. Because starting in verse 10 and making our way all the way down to verse 21, Monica, we didn't have it behind us when you were reading. Something broke unproclaimed for us a little bit. So I'm just going to read it all kind of freshly one time, and then we'll, we'll dive in and make some comments about it. It says, And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of uh, Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And then think of the miracles that that Mark's kind of bracketed this with. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears... Do you not hear and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is part of why I also wanted Roman, or, uh, Monica to read for us from the Deuteronomy 8 passage. Remember, Deuteronomy 8 is Moses talking not on the front end of their wanderings in the wilderness, but on the back end of it. He's addressing not the first generation that came out of, the, of Egypt, but he's addressing the ones that had grown up in the wilderness and were looking to go into the promised land. And he's asking them, do you remember? Do you remember when God fed you? Do you remember when you were thirsty? Do you remember how God provided? Now here's the danger. When you get into the promised land, you are gonna think 
that the food you eat and the water you get comes from your hard work. In other words, you're going to forget God's hand and you're going to accent your own. You're going to forget the strong arm of God and you're going to accent the backbreaking labor that you've added into the land. You're going to think provision comes from you and in that process, you will forget God. It's the weird transition that happens, the weird cycle of humanity. We need something, we cry out, we get it, and we forget where it came from. It's, it's just so silly, but it's a good news for those who are really silly in the same way that God perpetually rescues us from it. The Pharisees ask a question at the beginning of this text. Okay, we see all this stuff you're doing, and we're wondering if you're really the Messiah. Have you really cared about the plight of the Jewish people under the occupation of the Romans? Because we've been under occupation for a really long time. Now, if you went back into the Old Testament, you'd remember. The reason they were under occupation was because God cared about them. He was unwilling to let his people live in the land, serve idols, and die in their idolatry. And so he did what was necessary to break them out of it. Sending prophet after prophet, sending enemy after enemy. And it didn't work until he took them and pulled them from the land. And when he finally brought them back, after season after season of occupation, there was still the question, will you forget God now that you're prospering again? The fact that the Pharisees now want a sign of salvation from the Romans, it's a legit question, but it's one that's massively ignoring what Jesus has been doing. Jesus has come and healed. Jesus has come and fed. Jesus has come and taught. He's done exactly what the people of God need. And the Pharisees have said, yeah, but you didn't quite measure up in the ways I was looking for. So I need a sign that fits my box. And that just elicits a groan. Mark translates it as a sigh. It's the same word that that the earth is living under the, the curse of sin, and so everything's broken, and it's just creaking and groaning under that. That's, that's the same language of this sigh. Jesus hears that demand that we have, have something we need to see from God, and he has to fit into and measure up to our expectations, and inside him, he just, ugh. No sign will be given. And then, so that we don't necessarily demonize the Pharisees and exalt the disciples, the disciples make the exact same mistake. Jesus has provided for them over and over. He showcased the fact that it doesn't matter who the people are, he will provide for the needs of them, whether they're the worthy Jews or the unworthy Gentiles. He'll provide the needs for his people in their suffering and in their hardening. He heals the Jews, he heals the Gentiles. He feeds the Jews, he feeds the Gentiles. And now the disciples are basically hearing Jesus' groaning inside and he says guys there is something pure about you and the pharisees and the way they're thinking will be like a leaven that will just mess up what you've got and they're like it's about bread isn't it jesus he's like oh man (laughs) 
I mean, we're getting this, right? This has been the whole season of everything that we've been in in Mark. This is why all of our sermons lately have been, un- have been titled Misunderstood This, Misunderstood That, because everyone is misunderstanding Jesus over and over and over. And what Jesus has been trying to say is, oh, guys, 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 I can open this guy's ears. Did you see the deliberate way I did it? I'm about to open this guy's eyes, and I'm going to do that in a very deliberate way as well. But I want you to get this. The thing I'm concerned with the most is that you've got ears that work, and they're not working. You've got eyes to see what I'm doing, and they're not working. You're all about the bread of your present moment, and you're missing the whole backdrop of my provision for you. Why? It's because they're hardened. I told you that when we first had the first feeding of the 5,000, Jesus was going to reference it a couple times. And this is the second time now he's looked back on it. He's saying, do you not get it? Do you not feel this? Listen to his language again. Why are you, verse 17, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened having eyes do you not see having ears do you not hear do you not remember when i broke the five loaves for the five thousand how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up and they said 12 how many of you are there 12 you got the leftovers and just your leftovers were more than what we started with did you not see that Were your eyes broken? Were you blinded? And and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. So more leftovers than what we started with. Are you not seeing any of this? Do you not yet understand? John Piper asked this question. What didn't they understand? that Jesus would take care of them because you can't outgive Jesus. Long passage, but I think a simple point. When we encounter the sufferings of others and we sit down with them, you know how easy it is because you've been there. You know how easy it is trying to hear the details of how they're suffering and figure out how point by point you can undo that suffering, right? Here's what's wrong with my life. Okay, here's how we're going to fix it. And there's room for practical wisdom in life. But if that's the essence of what we give anybody, then it doesn't matter that Jesus came. If the essence of all we offer is how to undo and fix the sufferings of your life, oh, we're we're missing the point of this passage. The point of this passage is that Jesus cares. Now, as we've said, there's the secondary point of whether we do, right? But the secondary point of whether we care makes really no sense if we don't remember first that Jesus cares. I, I don't know this last week for you. We've got a little window into the Bradleys. And we want to care, but the main thing I want to say is Jess and Sharon, Jesus cares. This moment, these broken bones are not an indication that Jesus doesn't care for you. How do we know that Jesus cares? It's the first 
song we sang. God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son to save us. So we can bring every way that we've failed and everything that seems to enslave us and we can bring it to the foot of the cross and we can remember at that moment that Jesus cares. If we're going to apply this, I just want to ask you two questions. The first is, what happens in life to you that makes you so prone to think that Jesus doesn't care? What are the moments that when it happens, when, when life kind of unfolds in, in wave upon wave, perhaps like the, like the Bradleys have been dealing with, or in that one unexpected moment that you just weren't seeing and then all of a sudden it's there and we're so tempted to think, what is that moment for you? Because guys, I will just say, I believe the enemy is very aware of it. We do not have an ill-informed enemy. We have an enemy that wants to take every one of those moments and use it like, like Satan did in Job's life to bring an accusation. God doesn't care. See, this happened. Either it happened once or it's happened again, but either way, guys, we, we have to be able to answer the question for ourselves, where is that moment when I become vulnerable? And then the second question is, who do you have in your life that reminds you that Jesus cares? Because we've got this voice And we have not been left alone. We've been given the Holy Spirit by God to amplify this voice. But we've also been placed into a community where there are others who can remind us that Jesus cares. If you'd say, you know, I don't know entirely where I'm vulnerable, then I would say take that to prayer and ask the Lord to search you and to know you and to see what that that tendency and temptation is inside you. And then ask the Lord, would you bring someone along with a voice to remind me that Jesus cares? So then, let's just remember, you might be the answer to somebody else's prayer. It might not be that it's just me who needs this reminder. It's someone else around me who needs this reminder too. So let's pray to that end together. Father, I'm I'm grateful that in this long, uh, this long passage, Lord, that you've given us attention to your word to be able to track through it. But Lord, you're also making us aware of our own hearts. Father, I particularly pray for those that are vulnerable right now to thinking that you don't care about them because life has been harder than they've wanted. Those are tempting. And Father, we are grateful that you, sometimes immediately and sometimes gradually, you Heal us, make us aware, make us and help us to be dependent on your grace, your grace that saves and your grace that continues to save. And Father, I pray that if we have been quietly watching the sufferings of others, quietly on the side, watching and aware of the hungering of others for you and for your love. And Father, I pray that you would increase our voice even if we don't have every answer about a circumstance, just to be a faithful reminder, Jesus cares and he doesn't want us to be hardened. 
Father, I pray for that transforming work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and we're gonna sing as we...